You are listening to an Enoch Pratt Free Library podcast. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey. Your journey starts here. Here. And that's important. That's not just merely an academic matter. 
Because, because I contend that notions of white supremacy and anti-blackness are a core part of the collective American consciousness. That is baked so deep into the collective American consciousness that it's like the air we breathe. And so it's important, Black History Month really should serve as what we call a historiographical corrective to the white supremacist rendering of our place in human history. And so what do I mean by that? So during the what's called the European Renaissance, the Enlightenment period, this is the period in which Europe emerges and, and, and kind of bursts onto the world scene. Egyptology emerged as an academic discipline explicitly for the purpose of theorizing ancient Egypt out of Africa. In fact, if you read some old textbooks, you'll see them described as, as describe Egypt as not a part of Africa. And that was important. It was important because the 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 achievements, the high level of civilization of ancient Egypt were so incredible that it undermined the mythology of black inferiority that was necessary to justify enslavement in the, in the Middle Passage and colonialism. That if, because a part of the way when you think about Europe emerging onto the scene, you think about the project of modernity and of European colonization of the world, as John Henry Clark once said, that colonization was not just about, about taking over different lands or colonizing different lands, but it was also about colonization, about information about the world. That if you're able to colonize the way that people understand the world, in many respects, you can control how people are rendered, and therefore they serve particular political objectives. So when you think about the emergence of Europe, you think about the emergence of the slave trade, right, of enslaved Africans being brought over from Africa and essentially served as the bedrock for American global economic power, that the notion of, of Egyptology was a part of the process of dehumanizing people of African descent. And it doesn't stop there. So, you know, what's interesting is if you look at, let's look at Thomas Jefferson, who was somebody that the society pays great reverence to and talk about some of the ways in which he understood black people. Um, Thomas Jefferson, in the only book he ever wrote called Notes on the State of Virginia, he gives his opinions about, about black people. So I'm going to read some of what he says, um, and then I want you to let me know if any of this sounds familiar to you. He says of black people, besides those of color, figure, and hair, there are other physical uh, distinctions proving the difference of race. They have less hair on the face and body. They secrete less by the kidneys and more by the glands of the skin, which gives them a very strong, disagreeable odor. The greater perspiration renders them more tolerant of heat and less of cold. He goes on to say that the black, after a hard labor through the day, will be induced by the slightest amusement to sit up till midnight or later, though knowing he must be out at the first of dawn in the morning. They are at least as brave and more adventurous, but this may be perhaps perceived from the want of forethought, which prevents their seeing danger till it is present. When present, they do not go through with more uh, steadiness than, than the whites. They are more ardent than their female, but love seems with them to be more an eager desire than a tender, delicate mixture of sentiment and sensation. So when you think about like some of the ways in which you know people of African descent are rendered, Thomas Jefferson is echoing this notion that black people are inherently inferior, right? And using um, at the time eugenics, the scientific study to try to prove black folks as to, as to be inferior, as a part of the justification for Jefferson himself being a person who owned enslaved Africans. And so when we think about the historiography, the white supremacist historiography that's a part of the collective American consciousness, it's important that we understand that what we see today in terms of how black people are rendered have a historical antecedence, that there are things that precede our current moment that frame our collective consciousness. One other example that I want to give, when you think about the first major motion picture ever produced in the United States, Birth of a Nation. It was screened in the White House, and one of its major plot lines was of a black man trying to rape a white woman. 
And this was a highly, this is 1915, a highly celebrated film that was supposed to be a breakthrough in American media enterprise. Um, and that was a central storyline. So those are just some of the examples of the, when you think about the, the way in which black people historically are rendered, a part of what Black History Month should do is provide a corrective to the historiography that's been put forward that causes people to internalize notions of black inferiority. Um, I give one other example that's actually a really interesting example um, that I just came across a few months ago. Uh, Ivan Van Sertema, uh, most people know him for his book, They Came Before Columbus. Um, and in fact, one of the stories I tell very often is that um, 2008 is when I first was exposed to, to Dr. Van Sertema. Um, I, I was talking to a gentleman who told me that um, Africans were traveling the Atlantic Ocean before Europeans were. And so my initial thought when he, when he said that to me was that, you know, why would we have to have these conspiracy theories? You know, black people doing stuff first. You know, it's not a big deal. You know, even though at the time I'm, I'm conscious of white supremacy and how it operates, that was my initial response. And then I eventually read the book, um, saw a YouTube video about it, uh, and there were two conclusions I came to. The first was that um, not only were Africans traveling the Atlantic Ocean and really the oceans of the world before Europeans, um, this whole notion of the world being flat was something that it was mostly only Europeans that believed that, right? That it was that was actually something that the world being round was something that Africans had um, learned early on, and the Portuguese who would travel to Africa and interact with the Moors um, who had supreme navigational expertise. But the other thing I, I conclude, I have to ask myself, why was I so willing to be dismissive of the idea of Africans having that level of navigational expertise? And the conclusion I came to is I had internalized that because I had never seen um, images and narratives of people of African descent operating in high levels, marked, or operating in arenas marked as high levels of civilization. I had, not, I had not been exposed to those kinds of narratives, right? Even though I'm clear about the way racism works. Um, and so that's important because another book um, that he's less uh, known for is his book about blacks and science. And so he talks about it both historically and contemporaneously. And he talks about an incident where he is, I believe, in Cairo at a museum. And it was supposed to be, this part of the museum is a place where they had different birds, right, that didn't exist anymore, that had gone extinct. And in it, they found um, a structure that looked extremely big to be a bird. And what they realized was that it was actually an aeronautics device an, an, uh, of ancient Africa um, that was essentially like a glider. But the reason they put it in the section for birds is because no one would believe that Africans could have constructed a device where they would be able to use aeronautics. Right? The idea of black folks having the innovation to produce a device that would allow black folks to, to fly in the air. Um, and so that it was put the place where, where bird skeletons and fossils of birds were. Uh, so that's just important to really understand the way, if you're not exposed to those narratives, the notions of black inferiority and white supremacy are rational beliefs. Because the information that is often provided, it produces the logical conclusion of notions of black inferiority and white supremacy. And the things that most people don't even think about. So again, Black History Month should be a corrective to the ways in which notions of black inferiority and white supremacy are so ubiquitous. And in fact, unfortunately, the way that at least I've observed black history in mainstream spaces understood is that black folks' culture is, is merely a reference and not a resource. That when we think about the bodies of work that people of African descent produce, we produce bodies of work that can be used to address human problems. So for instance, if you're familiar with Cochrane State University in West Baltimore, right? Cochrane State is named after a woman named Fanny Jackson Cochrane. And so in 1913, she actually wrote a book um, essentially talking about her work as a teacher. So Fanny Jackson Coppin um, was, the, was a teacher and then director for 40 years of the Institute for Color Youth in Philadelphia. And so over that period of time, she had taught hundreds and hundreds of black folks, right? We're talking about from about 1865 to about 1905 or so, right? So we're talking about late 19th century, early 20th century. And so her husband and her friends urged her to write a book that would essentially help people learn how to teach, particularly teaching black folks. 
Um, and so it's a book. I haven't actually found it in print, but I've been able to find an electronic copy of it. And literally in the book, it's like it, it's the first third is autobiographical. The middle third is her talking about the ways in which she, she was the administrator of the school. And then the last third of the book is literally a manual, how to teach grammar, how to teach math. Right, how to, you know, and so, and it's literally something that when I talk to people that come out of schools of education, most folks have not read. And so, while while Coppin State, you know, naming the institution after Fannie Jackson Coppin, and people maybe even knowing who she is merely as a reference, as a as a figure in history, it's important for us to understand the body of work that Fannie Jackson Coppin produced as a resource. Right, it's something that I've actually used. Um, in training teachers and educators, using her text as a resource for learning how to address the issue of education. So when you think about, I mentioned Thomas Jefferson earlier, you think about the figures in mainstream white American history, and oftentimes what is attributed to them are bodies of work, right? If you've heard of Jeffersonian Republicanism, right, where the philosophy that is reflected in his writing of the Declaration of Independence is understood to be a worldview as to how people think about politics. But unfortunately, when it comes to people of African descent, we're merely references, right? They did a thing that was nice. They did a thing that was pretty cool. But don't really understand that as people of African descent, we produce bodies of work that because of this notion of black inferiority that's embedded in the collective American consciousness, unfortunately, many of us not only don't seek out black people's bodies of work, but at many times they're marginalized as being um, less rigorous. And in fact, an example of this, there's a, a woman named Naloli Brooks. She wrote a book called White Money, Black Power, documenting the emergence of black studies programs around the United States. And she talks about being a professor at a school in the Midwest in the mid-90s. And she was the chair of the black studies department, duly appointed to the English department. She was giving a presentation to the English department about two um, black studies classes she wanted to teach, two classes about black literature, one black women writers, the other black writers in the Harlem Renaissance. So she does her presentation, and she says after she does her presentation, there's this awkward moment of silence, and one of the members of the English department leans over to the other one and says, it's amazing that she believes that black folks have written enough that you could have two separate classes on black literature, right? And of course, you know, the meaning descended from there, but the purpose of that quote is to demonstrate the fact that when, when people think about the intellectual veracity of black people, right, that the idea is that black folks have not produced intellectual material that would be instructive enough, worthy of classes and major rigorous academic settings. So again, it's important to think about black history as a resource. What's also important in thinking about black history as a resource and thinking about bodies of work is also thinking about the impact it has if what we're exposed to primarily are notions of black inferiority or black oppression and black suffering. Like, what is, what is the impact of that? And I would argue that one of the major impacts of that is that it has the effect of allowing narratives of notions of black people being inherently, inherently pathological to be a part of the collective American discourse. So by a show of hands, how many people have ever heard of the term crack baby? Anybody ever heard of the term crack baby? So Harriet Washington in her book, Medical Apartheid, um, it provides, I think, some really important um, information about the role that this, that this notion crack baby played in the 80s, not only in perpetuating the war on drugs, but, have, but developing and, and ingraining in the consciousness of America this notion of black folks being inferior. So I'm going to read just a quote from her book. In September 1985, the New England Journal of Medicine published research by Dr. Arif Chasnoff, an associate professor of, professor of pediatrics and psychiatry at the University of Illinois, that described his findings that babies born to crack-using mothers remain smaller, sicker, moodier, and less social than other infants. His investigation, however, was, was tentative and profoundly flawed. It had no control group, and, and he had studied the children of nearly 23 women, far too few to infer anything about the prenatal cocaine, about prenatal cocaine exposure general. The punitive harm done to crack babies were first popularized in graphic detail in 1989 by Washington Post columnist Charles Cropham, who warned 
The inner city crack epidemic is now giving birth to the newest horror, a bio underclass, a generation of physically damaged crack babies who, bio, who are biologically inferior and for already is stamped at birth. Douglas Peshoff of the American Enterprise Institute, who coined the phrase bio underclass, did not shy from the racial label. This stuff, this is no stuff that Head Start can fix. This is permanent brain damage, whether it's 5% or 50% of the black community, it is there. Crop, count, crop hammers column triggered a cascade of national headlines describing these infants as born addicted to crack and neurologically damaged to the point where they constitute a permanent army of inferiority, miniature ghouls who can never be human. USA Today be well, quote, crack babies born to life of suffering, end quote, in its piece, quote, crack total among babies a joyless view even of toys, unquote. The New York Times detail how maternity wards around the country ring with the high-pitched cat cries of neurologically impaired crack babies. Now get this, none of this had been demonstrated by research and none of this was true. Although exposure to cocaine and the uterus can damage a fetus, a baby cannot be born addicted to cocaine, as children are sometimes born addicted to other narcotic drugs. Neither is there any difference between prenatal exposure to cocaine and crack cocaine. Moreover, the diagnosis of crack baby is based upon a woman's positive drug test, not upon the baby's clinical picture. So it makes no distinction between the mothers who smoke crack habitually and those who did so rarely. There is no such medical entity as a crack baby. So the term crack baby is a pop culture term. It is not based in medicine. And yet it is a term I know as a kid, we would make fun of each other and call each other crack babies, right? And so it is a term that was put in the mainstream American consciousness that had the impact of perpetuating a notion of this idea of black people being inherently pathological. The connection between that and what I talked about earlier is because, as I mentioned before, if you've only been exposed to images and narratives of black people, primarily as objects of oppression, then it makes it easy to then develop this notion of black people as inherently inferior, as inherently prone to violence and criminality. And that's a part when we think about what I've referenced earlier, the birth of a nation, right, and the way that it's displayed, um, a black man trying to rip a white woman. So all these are criminal notions of criminality that are attributed to black people that are only possible if one does not have a proper understanding of the history of people of African descent. And it goes back to the quote that I mentioned earlier from Carl Woodson, this idea of not engaging in the undue eulogy of the Negro. That that undue eulogy is what helps people to justify these kinds of notions. I want to give one other example. Um, uh, Sylvia Winters, who's a professor at a university on the West Coast, penned a letter to her colleagues. And in her letter to the, this was shortly after the uh, uprising after the case um, against the officers that brutally beat Rodney King um, in the early 1990s. And so there's a quote that I want to read that she pins to, this is just the, the first part of a letter that she writes to her colleagues. She says, you may have heard on a radio news report which aired briefly during the days after the jury's acquittal of the policeman in the Rodney King beating case. The report stated that public officials of the judicial system of Los Angeles routinely use the acronym NHI to refer to any case involving a breach of the rights of young black males who belong to the jobless category of innocent ghettos. NHI means no humans involved. So when you think about these are high-ranking officials in the judicial system in California referring to any incident involving young black men as no humans involved. So again, this notion of black inferiority, particularly these ideas of black people being inherently pathological, create a context where the kinds of policies that are made are made from the perspective of black people being inherently inferior. And then create a context where then the solution to issues that face black people have to do with increased levels of punishment. So a gentleman named Tony Weaver, who um, at Elon University that, that did a study um, on media streaming content, um, you know, Amazon Prime, Hulu, Netflix, 
and the images and representations of black people on those major platforms. And so it you know, does a pretty extensive um, research. Um, one of the things that he concludes in his study um, is that 60% of the images on these major media streaming platforms evoke the kinds of stereotypes um, that are part of the racist caricatures that I described in the Harriet Washington quote. This idea of black people being inherently criminal, black people being inherently less intelligent, that 60%, just about 60% of the, the, the characters that are, that are in those programs um, constitute uh, black folks that fit those caricatures. What he also finds is that Americans are more likely to support punishment when it applies to black people. So anytime folks are asked about punishment for a crime, what the study shows is that when, when the perception is that it's going to impact black people more, that there's a greater willingness to do so. And this leads us, when we really look at the past 30 to 40 years, the escalation of the war on drugs and mass incarceration, and you look at the, way, the mistake that has been, at this point, admitted by mainstream elected officials about the, the damage that has been done as a result of the war on drugs and trying to address violence and crime in cities like Baltimore, the approach was to lock people up. Martin O'Malley, uh, the former mayor, uh, between 1999 and 2006, um, was the mayor, and under his tenure, um, there were 757,000 illegal arrests during that period of time. In fact, there was a lawsuit that was brought on by the ACLU and the local branch of the NAACP um, and to, because there were 100,000 illegal arrests just in 2006. And they won. And so when you think about this policy of mass arrest, it was something that impacted Baltimore as an attempt to address the issue of violence. That approach assumes that the problem is that black people um, have an inherent penchant towards criminality, right? Now again, this isn't to say, in the context of this talk, that people who engage in violent behavior should not be held accountable. What we're saying is that when your primary approach to addressing the problem of violence is primarily through increased punishment, it assumes that that is by itself the problem, right? Or solely the problem that is a question of people not being punished enough for their bad behavior. So, Amos Wilson in his book, Black on Black Violence, and I'm paraphrasing, gives what I think is the best way to understand the phenomenon of violence. He describes how rates of homicide in cities like Baltimore as the externalization of a suicidal impulse. That when you consume images and narratives that tell you that you are worthless, then the idea of killing someone like you becomes a lot easier because you don't value yourself. And I would argue that if we're serious about addressing the issue of violence in Baltimore, then we have to understand that people aren't just killing each other because they have an inherent penchant towards violence. It is that we live in a society that engages in dehumanizing people of African descent on a regular basis. And so we have young people that essentially are swimming upstream in a society that, again, pretty consistently renders us as, in, as inferior, as pathological. And so a part of what happens is that it creates a dynamic where when you think about those who are making policies about black folks and addressing violence, what you see are people that will talk about our community and the people you know, engaged in violence as kind of being all the same. As kind of all being people that they just need to be punished. I testified in front of the Senate Judicial Proceedings Committee a couple years ago, fighting back against mandatory minimums. And one of the things that I said to the committee, because one of the things that they were saying is that anybody with a gun means that there's someone who's going to be engaged in violence. And what I said to them was that that's not true, that you have people that live in neighborhoods that are dangerous. And so they may have a gun to protect themselves. And that the policy that they were pursuing were putting people like that in the same category as people who should be behind bars, as people who are engaged in violence and criminal activity. 
and that it's important that as we're making policies, because what we've done in the past is put all of those folks in the same category, in a category that has caused hundreds of thousands of people to be trapped into the criminal justice system, who otherwise would have been better served outside of it. And going back, and I'll, I'll wrap it up and then take some questions, that going back to the initial conversation about the way that Black History Month is traditionally run, that we shouldn't use Black History Month just as an opportunity to talk about cool black figures, even though that's important. But Black History Month should be understood as a time to look at what are the ways that we're weaving the study of people of African history in such a way that it counteracts the notions of black inferiority that are part of the collective consciousness. That people need to be equipped with the information to challenge the constant barrage of notions of black inferiority that show up in public education, in the media, um, and in just general society. And that it's important that in studying black history and using our culture as a resource and not merely a reference, that that is our best hope at creating an environment that, that, that reduces the incentives or reduces the, that, that reduces the way in which violence is done um, with such impunity in our community. That if we engender a, a, an environment where there is intentionality around black folks loving ourselves, and you can't love yourself if you don't know yourself, right? To develop the self-knowledge that leads to self-love that can help people value their lives, their own lives, particularly black men who are the biggest perpetrators and victims of violence in a place like Baltimore City, that engendering notions of self-love and doing it at a large-scale programmatic level. We spend millions and billions of dollars on policing and criminal justice, and not nearly enough on programming and building infrastructure that will get black people to look at images of themselves that affirm themselves, that affirm ourselves in ways that make us less willing to engage in violence against each other. And so my hope is that, um, that we learn to celebrate black history in a way that is counteractive to that dynamic. I think that would go a much longer way of addressing the issue of violence and homicide in Baltimore than many of the kind of over-policing and tough on crime policies that have been a part of the past. Um, so I'll stop there taking any questions or comments. I just wanted to make a comment and a connection with something you said about the crack babies, where there was no biological evidence um, you know, to that notion. But there's a sociological paradigm with crack babies, because these are the generations of kids that were abandoned by their mothers and their fathers. Because as a child, you know internally and instinctively that you're supposed to be number one. So we've had several generations of children realizing that their parents are number one. So consequently, there's going to be a lot of anger with these children. And those are the crack babies that I always thought they were talking about these um, people or these younger generations that have become these menaces to society, and these monsters. And I just want to add on about the violence in the community because I never hear anyone speak, you know, everybody talk about oh, the violence and they're killing each other, this and that, but I never hear anybody say about the guns they come into the black community. Where are they coming from? Because we know black men cannot go and buy a gun legally. We know that they can't go to gun stores, they can't go to gun shows and get guns. So obviously, there's an influx of illegal guns that come into these black communities, whereas in Boston or a white city, that have the same social economic problems that they have in a black city, but they don't have the influx of guns. Mm -hmm. But no one talks about that. Mm -hmm. And I'm saying, well, are these people, you know, these leaders are so emboldened to the NRA that they can't mention about maybe whites that go to these gun shows, come into the community with a trunk load of guns and give it to 14, 15, 16, 17, 
18-year-old kids, and what are you going to do if you have a gun? What is it for but to kill somebody? And that poor state don't have the maturity, because you were talking about the gun stuff, but you know, they, of course these little young boys don't have the maturity to understand you know, about right and wrong, because you give them a gun, that represents power. And for a young kid that had that much power, what is he going to do? So when are they going to start talking about the influx? So take that back to your circles that you, you know, pontificate with and ask them that question. When are they going to change the conversation about the influx of these legal guns that come into our community? Absolutely. So, so I'll address the first part of your question and the second part. Because um, to your point about the sociological impact that you know crack had on that generation, not just one, several, several. And so when you think about, um, or at least for me, the importance of identifying that term has no medical basis, because I think a part of the impact it has is that it causes people to see the problem as the kids and that the sociological environment that produced them and the policies that created that sociological environment. So I think that part is for me why it's important to dispel the notion of a crack. To your second point, which I think is actually very important, and I'll say a couple of things about it. The first is that your point brings up the fact that there is a financial interest in the way in which homicide happens in places like Baltimore, that black people kill each other, there's, there's financial incentives. And unfortunately, um, I would argue that there are elected officials and people in high places that are involved in a variety of ways in that. And so that's a part of why that piece of the conversation, um, you don't get that on print media. Now, I've heard it, you know, being some of the work that we do in the legislature, like I've heard people mention it. I've heard legislators and high-ranking officials mention it. Um, but in terms of like the, the particularly corporate media, um, which has tremendous relationships as well um, that would undermine the, the financial incentives that would make it not in their interest to make that a big issue. The other thing that I would also say that I think is important, particularly about the piece of like having guns, what it represents, this notion that for a young person it represents power. I think what's important um, about that notion is that when, when we think about the things that are, that are normal aspects of what a human being needs, right? Even if you're looking at European social science, you're looking at, you're looking at Maslow's uh, hierarchy of psychological needs at the top of self-actualization. And then think about what it is, particularly black men are told it means to the highest you know, uh, level of manhood. Mm -hmm. Your ability to reserve violence, Right? or your ability to engage in sexual conquest. Mm -hmm. Those have historical precedent. Because when you think about the ways in which black men are rendered, both, and there was a piece of the Jefferson quote that I did get to, um, or I did, the part where he talks about uh, black men only lust after a woman, but can't engage in you know, uh, the sensations of sentiment. Right. So th there's kind of a historical uh, connection to that. And, and so in terms of like people getting access to the guns um, and the impact that it has, I think it's important that as we address the issue of where the guns come from, which is a very you know, important big issue, also thinking about like what impact does it have for young people to, to have guns, right? And to really address that. Because unfortunately, the way it's described is like, oh, they want a gun just because they're bad people. As opposed to the fact that these are kids that are constantly disrespected, told they're nothing, right? And so what, what do you do? You find ways to affirm your humanity. And unfortunately, we live in a society that socializes young black men to see that affirmation of our humanity in our ability to engage in violence and sexual conquest. Well, you know, and it goes back. Oh, go ahead, sir. Go ahead. Now, I'm talking about something else, which is maybe another side of what you were emphasizing. Uh, you were speaking of... Uh, our young people in particular, internalizing ideas and images and ideologies uh, which uh, dehumanize them. And if you develop this dehumanized self-interest, you are less uh, disinclined to harm people who are around you and who are like yourself. I think that's a very important thing, but I think there may be another side of this that we need to look at and maybe it's not looked at because of the potentially subversive implication that's involved. Well, I mean, what I mean, uh, you may have heard of uh, French, I don't know, I don't know. Uh, in the Wretched of the Earth, he describes uh, what happened, and he talks about the colonized, uh, what happened, they are subjected to violence. Uh, 
but it is also violence that is pent up because it's denied outright. The people are pressing hard to have more guns. Uh, and so generally, they don't think about uh, going at the person who actually caused the problem. But the anger is still there, and so the easiest outlet is against, he says, uh, other persons. So you may have sort of read The Rest of the Earth. Yes, he talked about you know, how, he's, how he said, while the settlers, the policemen, the live long day, he beat the native, make him crawl to them, stall at them. You'll find a native pulling on like the slightest look from another native. Mm -hmm. I remember when we were reading this sort of thing, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm giving my, my age away now. Uh, in the late 60s and early 70s, when I was 19, I was reading something. The first thing hit me immediately. I said, this sounds like Baltimore. Mm -hmm. That's how we act. And now I'm getting to understand why we're behaving this way. Mm -hmm. Because we don't usually go against the system that's causing the problem. But it's interesting, and Fernand also knows, however, that when resistance builds, when resistance to the system oppression builds, the internal violence does go down. Mm -hmm. It's very interesting because uh, Dr. King, who is known to be an advocate of nonviolence, uh, whose one objection to Fanon's poverty of violence, not the need for radical self-transformation, though. But Dr. King uh, uh, also notes when he said, you know, it's interesting that every place we go, when the movement rises, the internal uh, conflict begins to diminish. So in Montgomery, for example, the, uh, what is often called the black on black crime rate, dropped by 65%. And what does this suggest to me is that even with all the thousands that we call them, and even the things that our friend is talking about, you know, their damages, you know, once people have a sense that they can take their destiny in their hands, and once they begin to act collectively together in solidarity, many of these things begin to diminish because people are now directing their energies at precisely the system that's causing them. And that's one thing that I don't hear talk, I almost never hear people talk about that when they talk about black and black women. Right. Almost never hear them talk about that. Now do they talk about the same you're talking about? I, I missed something. Oh, what is it that we don't hear them talk about? That, that the rootedness of their self-destruction in the system of oppression mm -hmm. and how these behaviors actually begin to change when people redirect their energy. Redirect what? Redirect their energy oh, toward a you know, uh, liberatory uh, uh, social practice. Yeah, I think, I think. Even riots for a very short period of time, unfortunately. But even riots, for example, I remember the 16 riots. The crime almost disappeared, except for some, well, there was some gangsters like little Melbourne on somebody's payroll, and he was causing trouble. Well, he was directing it against people rioting, not in the usual criminal activity. Uh, it's, it's very interesting that that's a, so you put these two things together that you're talking about the psychological ravages of the system, and we understand that when people internalize the violence because of the system, because they don't have other ways of outlook, but when they do, this begins to change, and a degree of personal collective self healing uh, uh, can begin. Then you begin to look at the picture differently. And I've never heard, I, I've read, well, except in certain quote unquote uh, circles where you have the so called black radical tradition. Right. I was never hearing anyone even suggest the idea. Yeah. I mean, repeatedly talking about it. So, and that's never mentioned. Yeah. And it's old news. Mm -hmm. It's in plain sight. And it's not discussed. Yeah. So we combine what you're saying and what this gentleman is saying with that, then you get a different perspective. Absolutely, and, and I think I think first of the point about why it's not really talked about in mainstream spaces, I think in part in addition to just you know general cowardice that comes amongst folks who are kind of in the political establishment, I also think there's just a woeful lack of understanding um, in terms of our history, in terms of even the condition that we're in. I think that you know we still have people that I think are coming to a place of understanding the basic notion that our society is structured on white supremacy. Right? So, so if you don't understand that, then, then the point you just made doesn't make sense. And so I think that's a part of it. And then the other thing I would say, and this, this isn't quite the same thing, but I think it gets at the point you're making. I think, even though flawed in certain ways, I think the methodology of Elijah Muhammad and the Nation of Islam, I think, prove that theory in the sense that when they describe, you know, the white man is the devil. But a lot of people kind of sensationalize that. Right, and make it out to be, you know, them just name call. And if you really study it as a methodology, it was one of the ways to get black people who had again internalized the psychological ravages of white supremacy 
to see themselves, you know, black men as God, white men as the devil, to flip the binary such that they could see themselves as divine and see white folks in the, in, in the oppression that white folks were visiting upon black people in a way that, that, wasn't, that wasn't recognizable to people who had encountered it. And so I think a part of it is just, you know, when people have internalized these notions so deeply, um, I think a part of what's necessary is to flip, is to flip the binary. You know, flip it in a way so people can observe just how suppressed people's consciousness are, um, to understand that it's the system that's causing oppression and us. And even though it's flawed, so I'm not, you know, prophetizing, but I think it just, I think it, in some ways is an example of what you're saying in terms of what happens when you, when you make it clear the source of the oppression and what that can do to one's behavior. Because I think from a human development perspective, I think it would be hard to argue that there's a more successful human development methodology particularly for young black men in this context um, that has ever been in existence, and I attribute much of it to that. When you said something about um, black history as a re using black history as a resource as opposed to a reference, can you expand on that? Mm -hmm. So I'll give a few, a few examples. So, you know, I think oftentimes what happens, like I mentioned, is that we learn about really important figures in black history, right, and what they did but not so much like what are the bodies of work they produce to address human problems. So I'll give you a couple examples. Um, I reference Harriet Washington's book, Medical Apartheid. One of the things that she mentions is that the early medical industry in the United States had a horrific record at actually addressing ailments. And so the, she documents that many of the medicinal practices of enslaved Africans um, were actually more effective than the mainstream medical institutions of their day. So the, the response to that should be, oh, we should study what they did. Like, what were those medicinal um, approaches that were more effective at dealing with ailments than the formal American medical industry? Another example, um, Edward Wilmot Blyton in his book, African Customs, he actually talks about the, there was a, there was a epidemic in Europe, I believe in the early 19th century, um, around infant mortality. And so there were Europeans that went to African societies in West Africa to learn how they socialized pregnant women from, from the conception all the way to birth. Um, and so they studied the practices at which, so I mean, it was really, um, for lack of a better term, when people talk about like reproductive justice, you're talking about people in West Africa that kind of mastered like maternal prenatal care in ways that Europeans were. We should study, well, what were those methodologies that, that, that European, Europeans had such a problem with mortality that they went to study black folks? So, so, so that's what I mean when I, when I say use it as a resource. Like, what are the things that black folks did to address very complex and difficult human problems such that we equip people with that knowledge and expertise? Even one other example I'll give, and it's a, it's a very popular example, when you think about the pyramids, right? So Pythagoras studied in ancient Egypt. So if you think about Pythagorean theorem, you know, it makes sense in terms of the pyramids being in Africa and that being a very important form, you know, a basis of geometry. And the pyramids to this day have not been able to be replicated with the materials and whatnot that we use to construct them. So we should be from an architectural perspective, how did they do it, right? How did people of African descent do that? Because that would equip us with knowledge that would be helpful in the realm of architecture, right? Um, and so just thinking about like black folks in different fields of knowledge, you know, Ida B. Wells, who's a journalist and activist, right? So many of us may know about the pamphlets that she produced exposing lynchings in the South. But there's something to be said about her approach to journalism, right? She, one could argue that she's an early example of what some people may refer to as emancipatory journalism. How to use, from black folks' perspective, journalism as a political weapon, right? Not that she was the first to do it, but that as a methodology of doing um, or using media, she was someone that early on understood the importance of media and used it as a methodology to achieve political ends. So, so it's, it's about taking what it is that black folk, the bodies of work that black people have produced, and then think about, well, what does that, what, what skills does that equip us with? What knowledge about how to address human problems does that provide us with um, so that we can use it? That's why I use the Elijah Muhammad example as well. When you think about human development, like, 
You know, many people might anecdotally say, you know, if I want to get a brother off the corner, right, and transition him into being a more productive member of society, who do I know that's best equipped to do that? There are people who anecdotally would say Nation of Islam would be able to do that because they have a methodology and, they, and it's been successful, uh, more successful than other approaches. So again, studying well, what is it about their methodology? And there, and there are folks who have written about it. So thinking about the addition of then those bodies of work, people who've written about and expounded upon. So in the context of, say, an educator or volunteer putting up a bulletin board that people would see that have been directly impacted by the violence and the disenfranchisement and everything that's going along with all the social economic problems that we've had, instead of putting up the obligatory figures that we've always uh, looked at, Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, Thurgood Marshall, should those people be um, put up with, like, Brown versus Board of Education? I mean, I'm just trying to understand exactly what you're saying. You're using resources, use and references, just pointing to it and reading about it. Is that what you're saying? Right. So if you take, like, Frederick Douglass, you mentioned Frederick, Frederick Douglass, right? And so most people, if you say Frederick Douglass, you're talking about an order and abolitionist, yeah. right? What isn't talked about is the fact that he published a newspaper, right? And so he was the editor of a newspaper, and right? And so there's something to learn. Like, I think it would be important to read what he wrote or read the kinds of things that were published in the newspaper, right? Um, when you say he's an abolitionist, well, there's, there's more to it than an abolitionist. What were some things that were really important to him? One thing that was really important to him was black people's right to vote. And he actually wrote pretty extensively on ways to use the right to vote for black people to politically emancipate ourselves, right? So he wrote really explicitly about it. So we should learn. In fact, if you read what he said about black folks' participation in politics, I think there's still much that he said then that would be useful in thinking about how we approach politics now, right? So when I say resource, like even if you take someone like Frederick Douglass, who we hear about all the time, most people don't read what he wrote. Right? We're not reading the things that he opined about and then how to apply it to our current day context. Right? I'll take two months, I'll take two, and then I'll uh, um, So, first off, thanks for uh, speaking. Appreciate it. I appreciate it. You know, as you said today. Um, what role do you think our public school and sort of our political you know, policy side, what role do you think they play in? Um, black men loving themselves, I mean, what is it that can be done, whether that be through books or whatever your ideas are on that. Um, second thing is, I do um, appreciate everyone's questions uh, and comments, but I was hoping we could maybe hear a few more, I don't know how long you can stay, but if people can keep their questions and comments brief, we might be able to hear a few more. So, um, the education and, and politics in terms of black men loving ourselves, um, there, there are a couple of things that I would say. The first is that I would argue that we can't produce any substantive pedagogy uh, as educators that don't address self-concept. So one of the things that Fanny Jackson Coppin says in her book is that you never actually are teaching anybody anything. You're giving people the tools to do the self-discovery necessary to learn on their own. So you're a, a teacher is essentially a guide. And so a part of what should be made available um, are things that counteract the things that impact negatively the subconcept of young people, and that be a part of what's necessary in teacher trainings and professionals that work with students. Teresa Perry, um, she co-wrote a book with um, Asa Hilliard and Claude Steele. And I want to read, I'll actually quickly read a quote from, from the part of the book that she writes. Um, that addresses this. She says, in pre-civil rights, in, pre, in the pre-civil rights era, African-American children and youth lived in communities, attended schools and churches, and were members of organizations that have response to the larger society's explicit ideology about African-Americans' intellectual competence, communicated and counter about their intellectual capacity. Today, few individuals, organizations, and institutions acknowledge or pay attention to the reproduction of the ideology of black inferiority, 
and its potential impact on African-American students. So I would argue that that's central. That should be a part, like I don't, I don't think it makes sense to license a professional to teach black children who have not encountered that, who have not studied the impact that has on black children's minds, and deploys pedagogy that keeps that in its proper perspective. The other thing that I would say on the political side, in terms of black, you know, particularly thinking about black men and black people loving ourselves, is that because of the way that we've internalized notions of black inferiority, I think a part of the impact that it has in the political realm is that we don't understand our value. And so what happens is, is that as black people, um, and particularly I would say in my experience of doing advocacy having to do with black elected officials, um, there's this lack of self-worth and lack of worth of black people that I think caused black people, black people in elected office to essentially do things that harm the black community, right? That it becomes rational. Um, in our fights against mandatory minimums and tough on crime policies, we were dealing with a lot of black elected officials mm -hmm. whose attitudes about you know, young black people were a big part driving their support of mandatory minimums. You know, talking very negatively about black youth. You know, and, and oftentimes the way that it would get framed is, oh, Davon, you just, matter of fact, we were described by some of them as a criminalized is what we were called at points. To me, that said everything I need to know about what they think about young black people, right? That us pushing back against policies that harm black youth, we were understood to be the lobby for criminals. Um, and so I would say that that's the, that's the impact that it has. Um, I think a part of you know, pushing back against that um, is you know, building independent black political infrastructures um, to put people in office that do respect black people's humanity. Um, and that's long-term work, but I think that's the only sustainable long-term work to, to undermine that dynamic in political office. I'll go here to say that school. Um, just to add on to that, I was recently reading up on how social workers reinforce systematic racism, and I came across this pedagogy of the oppressed by Freya Paolo or Paolo Freire. So that's really good, but basically it's like the way that teachers interact with their students can either challenge the inferiority superiority complex or reinforce it and I think vastly like everywhere that I've seen especially like like public school at higher education no matter where you go like teachers are constantly reinforcing the like banking model which is essentially I have all the information and you just need to like receive it and repeat it back to me which is like reinforcing that superiority inferiority complex so I think it's a change in curriculum that needs to happen but also a change in the way that we're actually teaching people and interacting with people. And I, think, and I think in addition to that, it's also the thought leadership that undergirds the institutions that are producing these professionals. Because I think it's important, it's important to know that after Brown versus Board and the Civil Rights Acts, there was a transition where the institutions that, as Teresa Perry said, as Dr. Teresa Perry said, prior to integration, it was black folks that were responsible for the socialization of black youth and black people. After that, Government and white institutions, particularly nonprofit organizations uh, and government institutions, became responsible, became the institutions tasked with socializing folks in our community. And I think it's important to say that that thought leadership and those institutions have been an abysmal failure if their objective was to improve the quality of life of black people. I would argue that that wasn't actually their objective, and that in many contexts, their objective was to profiteer of the suffering of black people to reinforce the systems of white supremacy. But I think it's important, it's important to say that the thought leadership in, in Baltimore and around the country of those who are in schools of education, schools of social work, public health, and I'll talk University of Maryland School of Social Work, Johns Hopkins School of Education and Public Health, the basis of the thought leadership of those institutions have been an abysmal failure. It doesn't, it doesn't make sense to me that an official at Johns Hopkins School of Education is an authority on teaching black children in Baltimore City. I've not seen evidence that any of their methodologies are helping our community. So them being authorities only doesn't make sense. Um, and so I think it's important to say that um, and to put that out there because a lot of the power they wield is based off of their position as gatekeepers and authorities on what it means to properly educate. Yeah, we, 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 we've talked you know, about so many things. I have forgotten what I wanted to say 20 minutes ago. But uh, one of the things it was referring to when this gentleman was talking, 
You know, I've never been a big advocate of victimization. You know, I've kind of always believed, and I know I'm just one person, but you know, um, throughout my life, you know, I've never felt that I was a victim to the subtle racism, the overt racism, because I know people are people. And you know, and all kinds of people don't like all kinds of people since the beginning of time. So, and you know, my thing was as an individual, because when I was in the military as a commissioned officer and I would run across things, I wouldn't blame it on my race. I would always say, it's me. How can I be better? You know, because I know that so far as my white counterparts, they would, excuse my language, fuck him. So it wasn't my race. It was him because people just don't like people. All I would try to do is just try to be the best person that I could be as an individual. I am only one, but I am one. What I can do, I will do. And for example... You know, living in this life now, when I see the little squeegee boys, I pull them aside and I will tell them, hey man, people don't need nobody to wipe their windows off of them. They have windshield wipers and wiper fluid. Don't you know that a that minimum wage I heard was about $11 an hour? You can get a work permit, go to your counselor, and you can work four hours a day. You don't have to be do that. Because a man equals work, and work equals man. And you don't want to grow up to be a 30-year-old guy riding a bicycle. If you don't have no money in your pocket, you'll never be able to get a woman, and you'll never experience love. So let me say the, yeah. the little young boys, they will call me uncle, and they will say, hey, man, thanks a lot. And when I see them doing the furthest things, I won't sit and ignore them. I will go ahead and like try to be that person that we had in the 40s and the 50s and possibly in the 60s where, you know, you would try to pull up young kids. And so, you know, and I was saying, then I had been a teacher for many years. And my thing was not about teaching children what to think, but how to think. And I would always get slack from administrators because I would try to teach kids, well, you know, there's all types of intelligence. Just because you're not a good reader and writer or good in math doesn't make you less than. You have your own skills that God gave you to communicate to the world. You could be a musician, an artist, a great dancer. You know, God has given that. But the administrators would always want to call me into the office you can't tell kids that. You know, you gotta tell them about, they gotta be the good reader and the good writer, or they won't amount to anything. Yeah, so just in the interest of time, so one of the things I just wanted to address about what you said, I think it's very important, is that the, 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 the notion of victimization is, I think, a very tricky um, kind of proxy. Because I think, I, I believe it is important that as black people, we don't understand ourselves as victims, right? And we need to be able to balance that also with the fact that we are in a society that is based on white supremacy and undermines our humanity. I think one of the mistakes that some activists and some people in political spheres make is that black people are primarily understood as victims. And so primarily understanding us as victims in many contexts means that solutions are created that require our dependence on white people, white institutions, and institutions outside of our communities. And so while I think it's important for us to be clear that as black people, we, we, we are not understood primarily by our victimhood, that frame of reference is often used to justify the kind of dependency that really creates an exploitative relationship, whether you're looking at like the black people in the Democratic Party, whether you're looking at black people in the nonprofit and philanthropic sectors, like the, the, the kind of dependency and exploitative relationship that we have in those institutions is in part made possible by black people being primarily understood as victims. And it's important for us to understand ourselves as more than that, while also again acknowledging that we are in a system in society that attempts to dehumanize us and does it on a regular basis.
So I end there. Um, thank you for coming out. This podcast is a production of the Enoch Pratt Free Library and the Maryland State Library Resource Center. For more information and to access more library resources, please visit prattlibrary.org.